cancer seems to have been around for as long as human history has recorded diseases. But our understanding of cancers and potential treatments has dramatically shifted due to our research in genomics. This episode of The Tea Room, I'm handing over hosting duties to our resident oncology reporter, Felicity Nelson. Felicity recently caught up with Professor David Thomas, an oncologist and head of cancer research at the Garvin Institute and director of the Kinghorn Cancer Centre, to talk about the personalised approach to cancer, which is offering more precise treatment options for patients. Hello, Professor Thomas. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Felicity. So you've been working in the precision medicine area at the Garvin Institute for some time. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been up to and what specifically might interest uh, GPs and oncologists about what you've been doing? Sure. Well, I guess cancer is an ancient disease. Um, uh, been around. You can find cancers in mummies from ancient Egypt. Um, so it's a human curse that's been around a long time. But um, really, over the past half decade or so, um, it's come to be the leading cause of death in our community, just overtaking a cardiovascular disease, which uh, has been knocked off the top position by virtue of controlling blood pressure and cholesterol and other other risk factors for developing hearts, heart attacks and strokes. So cancer is a big problem. Uh, and what we've learned over the past 50 or 60 years is what makes cancers tick. Cancers are fundamentally genetic diseases in the sense that uh, the genes that we inherit from our parents will determine our cancer risk. And once a cancer cell starts going rogue, it's uh, the genetic circuitry that's uh, mutated, as we call it, um, that changes that drives the cancer's growth. And our ability to understand those rearrangements, the rearrangements of the molecular circuitry that makes cancers grow has enormously expanded in the past 10 or 15 years using genomic technologies, which means that today we can now uh, take a cancer patient and analyze the rearranged cancer genome, as we call it, and from there, more importantly, uh, work out whether there are treatments that we've developed that might work in that particular patient, what's called precision or personalized medicine. And that uh, those concepts, of course, go back decades, but the exploitation of those concepts in a way that is has real meaning for patients in clinics today, that's been a relatively recent phenomenon and one that's been the center of our research programs. And I guess, you know, we've all read quite a bit about genomics and how that's going to change the future of medicine, but it's kind of a difficult journey to get from, you know, the idea and the research into the application when you're trying to treat and diagnose a patient. Do you want to talk me through sort of where we're at now in terms of our stepping along that journey towards really being able to target specific cancer types? Yeah, for sure. Well, look, uh, maybe just to put some context around it, and that's some, something that will be familiar to most of your audience. Uh, you know, it's only 20 years ago that diseases like lung cancer, uh, which is Australia's leading cause of cancer death today, um, that all we had were chemotherapies and surgery and radiotherapy. And uh, the majority of patients with lung cancer would go on to die from their disease. The impact of genomics on lung cancer is has got to be a poster child for what lies ahead of us, I think, for all cancer patients. As of this year, 2021, there are 11 
mutations that are present in non-small cell lung cancer for which there are current clinically active drugs. And uh, those 11 mutations affect more than 50% of all lung cancer patients. So getting tested, if you, if you develop lung cancer, getting tested for those mutations has a one in two chance of identifying something that may lead to a change in treatment. And those changes in treatment, in turn, uh, perhaps extend survival, not just by a few months, but up to five-fold over the expected lifespan in the absence of that treatment. For some patients with, for example, ALK mutation positive non-small cell lung cancer, the treatment with an ALK inhibitor now extends survival out from around 12 months to more than 30 months. So these are not just uh, important for individual patients, but the impact uh, is incredibly uh, broad across the whole uh, the, the whole population of patients who go on to develop lung cancer, which, as I said, is the leading cause of cancer death in our community. Now, lung cancer is just one example. Every year, there are new drugs that are brought along from the pharmaceutical industry, which are now increasingly designed to find these targets and to, and to exploit the, their weaknesses. In 2018, of the 840 molecules in drug development for oncology, 91% were designed against a particular target, usually a mutation. We project that by 2024, in lung cancer alone, those 11 targets I spoke of that are currently actionable today will increase to 25. And that's just on the basis of the current success rates from phase two and phase three studies in lung cancer over the past decade. You can see that the future is coming upon us very quickly and really quite substantially impacting upon not only individual patients, but patients with high levels of unmet need. I'm anticipating the general principles that I'm just describing to apply to all cancer types. In fact, I would say that it may have a disproportionate impact upon cancer types, which have been traditionally very hard to treat, perhaps because they're very rare or because we haven't been able to identify the origins of the cancer in the first place, so-called cancers of unknown primary site, which are, uh, have a very high lethality. So I would say that there's considerable evidence that not only has the technology expanded, has it entered the clinic, but that it's changing the lives of patients. And indeed, it will be changing clinical practice uh, over the next 5, 10, 15 years. And I guess that's uh, one of the things that I imagine you're doing at Omico. You're the CEO there. And what I was reading on the website, it, it looks like you're really involved in that area between taking all that research and then translating it into a format that can actually be engaged with by clinicians and by patients, sort of bringing you know, all of that genomic knowledge into practice. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. You know, any time you move from true basic or, or early translational research into something that's going to change standard of care, you have to start scaling up that research to test what it looks like at, uh, at the population level. And that's what we're trying to do uh, through the creation of a nonprofit company called Omico, which enables us to reach out across uh, cancer centers in every state and territory so that Australians, no matter where they are, who have advanced cancer can have access to the genomic testing. And of course, just as importantly, have access to treatments through clinical trials uh, it's the treatments that really make a difference to patients, of course. And you started that in 2018. Where are you at now in terms of developing some of those projects? 
Yeah, so uh, we back in 2019 when we first began the program with a federal government grant, that is the national program, we aimed to screen 3,000 patients with advanced cancer and to hopefully put about 600 of those patients onto clinical trials. So we're now two and a half years in, about the halfway point, and we've already screened 3,900 patients. And by the time we finish the program, we expect to have screened perhaps close to 7,000 patients with advanced incurable cancers. We've already treated 450 patients with targeted therapies. And our data, at least at this early stage, suggests that we've extended survival in that group from about 11 months to about 19 months on average. So we can certainly see the benefit to the patients who, in whom we find a drug target in bringing those important clinical trials uh, to, their, to their treatment. Hopefully, by the end of the program, we'll see almost 1,000 patients get on to some form of targeted therapy that's matched to the results of their genomic test, and hopefully mostly through expansion of clinical trials. This is a field where uh, there will, while it's at one end completely ready for clinical practice and can make a difference for the patients that are in front of us today, at the other end, it's got so much potential that it's going to be a rich vein of research for many years to come. And it's, it occurs to me that with these kinds of targeted therapies, immunotherapies, they're often extremely expensive and they are quite carefully guarded by the government in terms of who gets access to what and which patients are eligible for certain types of testing and can go and access these you know, extremely expensive drugs. Do you get involved in that space, the kind of drug pipeline issues and the accessibility problems? Yes, but in, I mean, I think it's incumbent on all of us to think about how we can afford the successes of science. Uh, all, all we're seeing, all that I'm describing, all that we're discussing today is the impact of science on health outcomes. And of course, science is, it's lovely to see science being successful, but we have to think about how we as a society can afford these successes in the longer term. One of the things about genomics is that it's not just another test. It really is a fundamental change in the way that we think about and treat cancers. And it's going to require significant reorganization, not just of clinical care and research structures, but actually about how we fund and enable access uh, for patients to, to, as you say, treatments which are often very expensive. In our own program, we've tackled that problem by seeing clinical trials and research as a vehicle for treatment of patients as a legitimate source of treatment, not just as an esoteric sideline, which, uh, which is not relevant to, ca to cancer care. The, the thing that drives us in our vision is that back when I was a registrar in the 1990s, um, when a patient had run out of treatment options and we thought about early phase clinical trials, so-called phase one trials, I'd be quoting my patients a 5% chance of benefit. That 5% in phase one trials has now jumped to 30%. Now, for a patient who's run out of treatment options, getting access through trials to treatments that without uh, really having a lot of data behind them, just on the basis of rational drug design, might offer a one in three chance of your tumor shrinking is as good as many of the standard treatments we have today. And so I think the future has to involve a rethinking of our relationship with uh, research, between research and standard of care treatments, and that entails a, a reconsideration of how we invest our medical research and our, and our health budgets, all the way up to the, you know, the very apex of decision-making in our governments about how we see Australia as the clever country, the cl country that 
creates high value jobs in uh, areas like medical research and in uh, clinical trials. And that, that, that indeed is indeed a priority for governments going forward. So don't worry, there are many people working on this problem of how to make sure that all of the patients that we treat can have access to these drugs or as many as possible. Mm. And I imagine on that journey, you've um, you've probably roped in a lot of clinicians, um, maybe oncologists and other types of specialists, uh, you know, to partner and, and drive patients through your program. How does that work from a um, from the perspective of a clinician who wants to get involved with this kind of work? Email me. Uh, in fact, um, <laughs> it's so easy. It's okay. simple, uh, we have a we have a very talented, hardworking team who can arrange for your patient to be consented and for your patient's uh, tumor material to be shipped to our testing laboratories where we can under, undertake these tests. And we have a separate team that uh, takes the results of those genomic profiles and links them to the available treatments, not just through our own suite of trials, but to all the trials that are going on throughout the country, hopefully close to home where, the, where your patients are. So uh, the, the message we'd like to send is that um, we, if you've got a patient who's fit enough and will, might benefit from such testing, we would like to be able to help. And I saw that you focus mainly on, at least in one part of your program, mainly on patients who have sort of early stage poor prognosis cancers. What was, why did you make that choice to focus on those patients? Well, actually, we, we, we don't focus on any particular cancer type, but we do, we are limited at this stage to patients whose cancers have become incurable. We, we don't want to distract patients who might be cured by conventional therapies and put them onto protocols whose outcomes may be uncertain. We're trying to help where, where, where the cookbooks have run out, and that, that's in patients with advanced cancer. We do have a separate part of our program, Felicity, which is about trying to understand why young people get cancer, what we call early onset cancers, that is under the age of 40. Only about 5% of all cancer occurs under the age of 40 years, and we think there may be genetic reasons why that happens. The good news is that we cure about 85% of that population. So we're interested to know whether we can learn something that might help us to keep those patients healthy and well over the remainder of their hopefully long lifespans by using the genetic information that we, that we obtain by trying to understand why they got the cancer in the first place. To stop their second cancers, for example, or detect them at an early and curable stage if that were to occur. So the program is trying to tackle not just at the far end of the patient journey where the cancers have become incurable, but also asking questions at the early stages of cancer diagnosis when perhaps by getting the treatments to the patients at the right time, we can get them at a curable stage and then prevent them from going, uh, you know, cancers from becoming essentially incurable in the first place. Mm. And one final question. I recently attended a conference where they were speaking about some of the difficulties with uh, doing biopsies of various tumors and then doing genetic profiling specifically because within one tumor there might be several different genetic profiles and then within one person there might be several different tumors with several different genetic profiles and that there was a bit of a difficulty in in sort of getting consistency when you're trying to do it was at a pathology conference that's why they were talking about this um do you sort of have those difficulties come come up as you're doing your research Look, there's certainly concerns that um, cancers evolve continually. And so 
you could imagine if you had your cancer diagnosis 10 years ago and then it comes back, is it reasonable to assume that the cancer would have the same genetic fingerprint today as it did at the time when it was originally diagnosed, especially if you've received treatments that might have uh, caused those tumours to evolve in a particular way to become resistant? So there are techniques called like liquid biopsy or sampling from the peripheral blood instead of trying to get a sample of tumor tissue, which is often difficult and painful and costly to obtain. That might represent a kind of average signal across all the uh, deposits of tumor throughout a person's body to try and uh, overcome this and to understand how cancers might have evolved. That technology is looking very promising, and I think it is likely, hopefully, to have a place one day uh, in routine clinical care. But at this point in time, our program, at least, is focused around using the primary tumour material. We think you go straight to the source and ask there, and and certainly, so far, that's been successful for 95% of the patients that we've we've screened. Mm. Such a fascinating area. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Thomas. You're most welcome. Uh, I hope your listeners enjoyed it. The Tea Room is brought to you by the reporters at the Medical Republic. Production assistance, the music and artwork for the show is produced by Victoria Nelson. Catch you next time.